G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. There is an interesting story that emerged just recently that illustrates what we're up against when it comes to truth in advertising. And what happens when there are powerful lobby groups that want to defend their patch, even if it means exploitation and destruction to the fabric of our society. Thousands of posters warning pregnant women about the dangers of alcohol had to be removed from the walls of hospitals and GP clinics around the country. Fairfax Media reported Drinkwise, a safe drinking group almost entirely funded by alcohol companies. Now, just catch that little connection there. Well, they recently withdrew 2,400 pregnancy warning posters after doctors and health groups told it the message was utterly wrong. Now, while the headline, It's Safest Not to Drink While Pregnant, reflected government guidelines, the text beneath it, in other words, the small print, included the words, It's not known if alcohol is safe to drink when you are pregnant. Well, it was considered misleading and inaccurate, and that's because it is very dangerous. The president of the Australian Medical Association, Tony Bartone, raised concerns with DrinkWise, alerting them that the small print was fundamentally incorrect because the science was clear that alcohol had devastating effects on unborn babies. Well, Shane Varco is the executive director of Dalgano Institute. He's across the latest data on drug issues. Dalgano Institute is a coalition of alcohol and drug educators. And Shane Varco is joining us today. Hello, Shane. Welcome back to 2020. <laughs> Good morning, Neil. It's great to be here again. Well, Shane, I'm not sure that the story that I told in introducing our segment today actually got as wide a publicity as it deserved. Uh, those small prints, uh, those small print items that you get on a poster, uh, you have to look at them very carefully. But, you know, when the small print is wrong, it needs to be called out. The AMA did a good job in that, would you say? Absolutely, Neil. I think one of the difficulties with these kind of, uh, like with all marketing enterprises, the idea is to get your brand message out and you don't want any dissenting uh, views attached to your brand. And what's really concerning about this particular issue, and the AMA did discover it and Fairfax did call it out, which is good on them, is that uh, the alcohol lobby and the alcohol industry are um, heavily tied to, obviously, legislative outcomes. And they're they throwing money at various political parties as well to try and get them to to keep, uh, not so much keep evidence out, but to sort of play it down. And one of the concerns we have is that... Um, the, the evidence around alcohol consumption and the dangers and issues around it growing and growing, which we've known for decades, of course. Uh, but uh, again, with the populist view around alcohol, it's very hard to get a dissenting voice into the marketplace. But now the medicos and, and, and world-leading journal, uh, journals and medical journals, including The Lancet, have now come out. I'll just sort of throw that in there. They've just come out recently 
with an absolute clear statement, there is no safe use of alcohol at all. And uh, they've gone on to that level. So when you've got these kind of prestigious and uh, incredibly uh, profound and, and broad uh, looks at this subject matter, has been under scrutiny for a number, number of decades. And this evidence is mounting and now it's absolutely crystal clear. There's no ambiguity in any of this. Uh, and then to have this industry, which of course they're going to do, they're going to push back, to throw out this uh, with that little uh, caveat underneath. To be caught out was a really important thing because that was going to end up in about um, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of medical clinics. That was the next rollout. was going to go into thousands of medical clinics where the average mum and dad would be in there or young teenagers sitting on the wall. You know, you shouldn't make past drink when you're pregnant, but we don't really know that's true. Mm. Again, just feeding into that whole narrative that, oh, alcohol must be that not too bad. It's... It's legal after all. So, again, it's this whole play together. So, yeah, it was a good call-out. Really, really thrilled to see that happen and get the traction it did. Now, Shane, yesterday, the 9th of September, uh, this has become a regular day to recognise uh, the uh, Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. It's Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Day, ninth day of the ninth month, and uh, even, uh, you know, bringing that down, zeroing in on the ninth hour as a day to recognise that. Uh, this idea of Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, how do you describe that in uh, in layman's terms for, uh, for listeners who might not be very familiar with what that is sure look it's a difficult one to, to distill down into simple terms and, and of course there are many many greater experts on this uh, than myself but certainly FASD fetal alcohol spectrum and disorder has been uh, seriously been studied for a number of decades now and it's growing and it's the evidence base around it is, is now I think irrefutable in, in the marketplace about its extent. I think there's only 428 different conditions that are now linked to it as an outcome. That's really concerning. So basically what it is, is it's, and by the way, completely preventable, but sadly uh, incurable, which I think is a very important distinction we need to put in the, in the opening statement in trying to define this. Uh, it's, it's preventable, completely preventable, but it's utterly incurable. It becomes... Um, the congenital defect of the fetus, because when the, when the alcohol is a teratogen, in other words, it, it easily traverses, as do most illicit substances as well, traverse the placental wall. And so the, the, in, the child, in, in, as it's developing in the mother's womb, is subject to whatever the mother ingests in alcohol, particularly in other drugs as well, but alcohol particularly has an incredibly negative impact, or I can have a negative impact on the baby. Not everyone who drinks alcohol has, uh, has an FASD outcome. But the science is growing more and more that there's slight variations of this and different levels of this coming out in all sorts of uh, ways in uh, children that are being born. So, again, the alarm has been went off about probably 10 years ago strongly, but it's been growing ever since. That's why FASD Day was set up on the ninth hour, the ninth minute, the ninth uh, day of the ninth month every year to say, look, the first nine months of your child's life are imperative uh, absolutely imperative what uh, you drink what you eat and whatever is important to the child's development and, and Isabella's List which is part of the Delgano Institute is, is dedicated to uh, that whole area of, of the child from basically from conception to adulthood you know what are we doing with substances so that's part of what we do but FASD and um, and as I said the, the breadth of conditions that can emerge from it is really, really quite concerning. So you can have everything from, you know, minor behavioural issues in a child, which, you know, it's ADHD or whatever, but it may not be that at all. In fact, it could be the, the, the facilitation because of FASD to severe, obviously very severe 
manifestations of it where there's actually uh, facial distortions of the child um, and it's quite clear that there's there's something significantly different about the child and there's cognitive issues uh, you know behavioral issues it goes on and on and on and so and being congenital defect it is, in, it is incurable and they're finding it very difficult to actually manage although there are mechanisms more and more mechanisms coming into play to help manage that so it is a very disturbing condition um, and one that I think it, it, the highlight that has been given is, is, is good, but it needs to grow. I think more and more mums and dads, because it's interesting now the data that's coming out is that if you're trying to get pregnant, have a, have a baby, that's, it, it, as, it is as important that dad does not drink either in the process of trying to conceive the child because they're now finding from evidence coming out of Scandinavia that even uh, if dad's a, a, a solid drinker when trying to conceive, that can impact the development of, of that child as well. So this is data that's still emerging, of course, um, but the science on this is quite distinct now and there's no argument about this, this particular condition and its severity. And, of course, when you say 428 distinct disease conditions that co-occur in people with FASD, Mm -hmm. a lot of people might be listening to our conversation today and thinking, well... uh, uh, my parents were drinkers, uh, you know, my mother, my father, and yep. somehow or other I feel like I've worked out all right. Uh, yep. But then there's this element of doubt that you introduce into this sort of conversation. I wonder whether I am as good as I could have been uh, if I perhaps have even been exposed to uh, some of those uh, or have developed any of those uh, disease conditions uh, because some of these might not be immediately recognisable because you're talking about things like just, uh, you know, cognitive uh, performance and, uh, and 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 other issues there with you know 428 different conditions. And so we all may in some in some sense, if we've had parents who drank alcohol uh, during conception with us, we may actually uh, have some of these within ourselves. Is that the case? Well, look, that's definitely a, a possibility. One of the difficulties with this particular condition, and as it's emerging, how they can detect it. Um, is trying to get the uh, disclosure, and this is one that's been happening in the last 10 years, and the data is becoming more and more clear because these collection mechanisms are a lot better. But you, 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 when you talk to people about their, their alcohol or substance use, people, generally speaking, aren't forthcoming, and particularly if they're uh, overusers of a, particularly the legal drug of alcohol, they, they use it more than they believe they should, and they don't disclose. So do you drink, are you a regular drinker? They're, oh, no, 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 I'm not a regular drinker. Well, in fact, they could drink every day, maybe one or two glasses, but that's actually a, a chronic condition. I mean, that's you know, every, one or two glasses every day is actually not good for you at all. But they would not see themselves as having a problem with alcohol. So again, the disclosure rates uh, are, are very difficult, but in recent years, they've been able to collect better data around that. So that's where they're honing in more and more on on the elements that contribute to this. And, and the consumption of alcohol is, a, is obviously the key issue in, in this space. And so they're trying to determine how much have you been drinking or your parents drinking and uh, has that influenced uh, the outcome of the pregnancy? So, or the, sorry, the child from the pregnancy. So again, it's, it's a possibility. And it's, and it's, it's something that, uh, that's, that, that's seed, not a doubt, but I think of, 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 of warning. I think that's really important in people, particularly moving forward for those who obviously are now born. <laughs> they can't re- reverse that or change that. But I was speaking at a, at a, uh, a public meeting once and, and we had this, this, this discussion and um, a couple of uh, women came forward and had a chat about their, you know, their drinking and 
they were concerns, and one was concerned about some of the outcomes she, she was seeing, and another woman was quite open and not boasting, but quite open about her, you know, heavy drinking, episodic drinking when she was pregnant, and her kids seemed to be okay. They're a bit naughty, but you know, they seem to be okay, and it's like. Um, again, what's your perception of naughty and, and, and what contributes to that? And, but that's why there, there is uh, now working on ways in which they can detect more accurately what are the contributing factors to that behavioural issue so, and cognitive issues as well. So the science is catching up with the, the anecdotal and intuitive understandings we've had for, for many, many decades, but it's now becoming very clear from the evidence-based and scientific research that this is a real problem and it's a growing one. This week is Marriage Week. Find out more at vision.org.au slash marriage. It's Neil with you. It is the Monday edition of 2020, a conversation around drugs and alcohol this hour. Our, our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Shane Varco is our special guest, Executive Director of Dalgano Institute. Uh, we've begun talking about FASD, Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, given that yesterday was the ninth day of the ninth month and a focus on just what a difference it can make to a child if a child in the womb is at conception is uh, exposed to alcohol uh, whether the mother or the father well our talk back line open 1-800-316-316 and I think before we t- uh, move on in the conversation let's take a call Anne is on the line from Labrador in Queensland hello Anne welcome along oh thank you listen I am so grateful that they've got this so that they can help them understand the alcohol, how it affects them. I know that they're very uh, specific about drugs and stuff, but I think sometimes alcohol they're not really, and I thank you that, that they are really trying to find it out and really um, know that they're going that something's going to happen to them when they're uh, in the womb, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And thank you so much for calling in because uh, you're you're just drawing attention to something pretty important that most people probably uh, who are ignorant of these things are likely to have had the wool pulled over their eyes and not uh, understood the facts. Uh, Your thoughts for Anne. Uh, Let's uh, come back to Shane. Shane, your thoughts for Anne from Labrador. Yeah, look, Anne, thank you. And I think think too uh, many people, particularly in, um, in... the more rural settings of Australia, the, the, the information that we're talking about is, can, can be devolved fairly quickly in the major cities and obviously amongst practitioners. But getting it out into the bush and where, and where narratives around alcohol are, are a lot different, um, they, they tend to be a slower to catch up. The narratives, you know, it's, it's what you do, it's the local thing, it's the, it's the sporting club thing, it's, it's kind of the, you know, you go to the pub and all those kind of local good bloke, good girl narratives that sort of come out of the bush. And some of them are harmless, but unfortunately the alcohol component in that narrative is quite strong. So when you challenge uh, the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, you throw that in there, you get the whole, ah, look, it didn't affect me when I was little, blah, And those kind of statements start to pop out. And that kind of, uh, unfortunately, that kind of anecdote tends to block the facts and the evidence that are coming out. So, yeah, I, I think it's really important uh, what you've been saying there and that uh, we really want to see more of this. And the more local uh, mums and dads can be talking about this, not in a don't drink, you're a bad if, person if you drink, but, uh, hey, guys, you realise that, you know, when you're trying for a baby, when you're having a, and having a baby, it's the best idea, absolute best practice not to drink at all. Just if you want to have a baby, stop drinking for the ni- next nine months at least. Uh, and then afterwards, you know, they get the argument that even breastfeeding is an issue, but so for at least... For the nine to twelve months, don't drink at all. I mean, what, 
the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to benefit from that. Your baby's going to benefit from that. And no one loses in that scenario at all. So those kind of conversations would be really helpful. I think particularly in the bush where those, again, those kind of good old, you know, have a, have a drink kind of narratives tend to, tend to sway perception rather than the facts and the evidence around this very concerning disease. Thank you so much to Anne from Labrador and our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation. Uh, interestingly, Shane, that drinking is so much a part of our social fabric that uh, the message getting through, and we might be talking younger people because uh, young couples, young marrieds, uh, those who are planning on having a family, lots of babies, of course, uh, still conceived by accident, and so actually making a plan for your pregnancy it needs to include some of these sorts of ideas about what do you do with alcohol if you're going to have a, a baby and start a family. What are your thoughts about the, the social fabric and just how hard it is to cut through with the message that you're carrying? Again, as I mentioned previously, it, it depends on the, on the locality. Although in the last, particularly the last five years, I've been, I've been tracking this for nearly 10 years now, uh, actively tracking this in, in my role and watching the emergence of this, and, and organisations like the National Organisation for Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, great organisation, they're the, if you like, their go-to people on this um, in, in the country, and we support them and, and, and uh, advocate their work as well because they are the experts. But yeah, we've seen this, this growing, um, uh, growing fact-based, evidence-based uh, uh, narrative emerge, which is getting real traction. So we, we now see with all doctors now, with all uh, medical practitioners, as you've heard recently with the AMA, they're actively talking about that if, if they know that their, their client, their patient is, is planning a child or is pregnant, that, that you stop, stop drinking. Now we can't, no, no one can make someone stop drinking alcohol, it's not going to happen, but, but they can advise and strongly you know, recommend and, and give them all the details on FASD and you know, if you're planning a child, the, the last thing you want, particularly if uh, maybe, maybe you're, a, you're a single parent and you're wanting, to, for different reasons, to have the child on your own, there's enough difficulty being, you know, parenting um, with, with, with one person without having a child with behavioural issues as well. So you, you don't want to have, you don't want to put yourself behind the eight ball. And the, the idea is to maximise both the health and well-being of uh, parent and child and so that they can move forward in that space. So really, I think the conversations, getting back to what I said before, the conversations that need to happen have to be, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the mums and dads, in mums groups, in community groups, in sporting clubs even, you know, talking about, you know, hey guys, you know, if, if someone in the room is pregnant, for example, and, and, and it's clearly pregnant or they know that they're pregnant, well, maybe we don't all, you know, shout rounds and, hey, let's have an alcohol-free night tonight because, you know, uh, Mary's with us or, you know, so, so, so again, being supportive, and I think it's not just you know giving prohibit, prohibitive warnings, but it's actually being supportive in encouraging the best practice for that person. So having alcohol-free events, and we're seeing more and more of that happen with young people. Uh, the binge drinking thing is still there. There's a small, still a portion of young people, particularly that binge, sort of the 18 to 24 bracket. But uh, we're seeing we're seeing a massive decrease since uh, 2008, 2009, when nationally we went after this. But of course, uh, yeah, alcohol binging is now happening more and more in their 45 to 65 bracket, which of course are unlikely to be pregnant. But that's that's kind of another issue. But this kind of this emerging narrative of you know cutting down the alcohol, and this is another great vehicle by which that can be happening. So that uh, that we can educate people all across the board. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you shouldn't be drinking, and this is just another very very good one why you, you, you shouldn't take up alcohol or use it while you're certainly while you're pregnant. 
Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Jason in Dolby in Queensland. Hello, Jason. Welcome along. Hello. How are you? Good, Jason. What are your thoughts for our conversation today? Um, Now you're talking about alcohol, but I'm just wondering... um, the studies on other drugs because my mum when I've only recently found this out and I'm just wondering about say benzodiazepines and psychoactive drugs because my mum was heavily on those things and all my life I felt different and people have just dismissed it, and I've had all the behavioural and cognitive things, and still today at 46, it's still hell. Yeah. What's the research on, cause like when I was four and five and six and in started school, and they would take me to see this person, and they'd, they'd make me play mousetrap and talk to them. I mean, I don't remember. I don't remember being born or... I mean, I mean, I know your study is in alcohol, but other things that affect the fetus. And now that I'm 46, and it's still, and and yesterday I was talking to my pastor, and I didn't know what yesterday was, but I was talking about if she could find out information about fetal alcohol syndrome and just relation to other things. Well, Jason, I want to just honour you for your courage in calling and uh, talking about your own story uh, so openly. Uh, Let's get some thoughts. Shane, uh, what are your thoughts for Jason? Oh, look, Jason, I reiterate Neil's comments. It's a difficult thing to do to disclose that, but it's also very painful. I can hear that in your voice. And Listen, again, we really need to reiterate, uh, we are not medical experts. We look at the literature like everybody else does. We have the same data that's put out. And as, much, as quickly as it's produced, we get onto it and review it and look at it and spelunk it for, for data and make sure that we're, we're getting the facts. But I'm not a medical person, but we do know um, from the evidence coming out, particularly around the new push for cannabis and the idea of even medical cannabis, which is not the THC variety, the, the other cannabinoids, we know now from science coming out of Australia particularly that CBD and CBL and other, other uh, cannabinoids are also teratinogenic and mutagenic, and there's some real concerns that cannabis use during pregnancy can create some real problems, and even some of the science now is coming out, evidence-based data, journals being produced, uh, looking at the potential that this cannabis could be the new thalidomide if it's not um, carefully looked at. So this, this, is, this is data that's been suppressed by the pro-cannabis lobby, of course, because they don't want to stop the, or curb the, the enthusiasm that's uh, albeit manufactured enthusiasm around so-called cannabis and its benefits. Um, and the, the new forms of cannabis medicine, of course, we have cannabis medicine on the PBS for the last 25 years, which has been pharmaceutically tested. Now, here's the point. The reason I raise that is that when it comes to any drug use um, during pregnancy, the pharmaceutical companies have had to work very hard, and, and I don't know all the details on this, particularly the benzodiazepines and the antipsychotics, um, you'd have to do the research yourself, but I'm not sure. I have no specific...
specific data in front of me about their influence on fetal development. So I cannot speak with authority to that space. But the, the issue around substance use, any kind of substance use, when the baby's being bought, you know, foods, you know, nutrition, all those things, they do influence how the baby develops. And so I would encourage you to, to look into that. Do some research yourself. And in fact, it'll be good for your own said peace of mind to understand what's been going on because pharmaceutical companies don't always get it right clearly with opioids and the over-prescription of opioids. It's seen what pharmaceutical companies out of control can do in the, in the pain management space. But when it comes to other, other drug use and drug prescriptions, they have to test these, these well, as best as they can these medications and these new developing medications in as many scenarios as they can to try and maximise and minimise sorry, the harm to the patient whilst maximising the therapeutic benefit to the patient. And that's not always possible. And that's why all these drugs have incredible warnings attached to them. Every drug, including paracetamol, the, the humble paracetamol tablet, has a whole bunch of, a whole swathe of warnings about the potential harms of this drug because they are drugs. And all drugs are, got, are toxins in, at some level. So we've got to be very careful about what we ingest at any level. But I'd encourage you, Ray, to, to pursue that. So I think it's really, really important. Now, what what impact do these psycho, uh, psychosis-managing drugs, pharmaceuticals, potentially have on fetal development? I think that's something that, that you should uh, champion yourself, my friend. I think that would be uh, for your own peace of mind, but it may help others as well. So, okay. But I, I just want to reiterate again, I'm not a pharmacist and I'm not a medical practitioner, so my, my information is limited in that space. Uh, Shane Varco, when we talk about having confidence in the sorts of things you're saying this hour about alcohol and pregnancy, I imagine we do need to come back to what is the latest material that is being distributed by the medical fraternity. And, of course, you referred to uh, medical journals like The Lancet. Now, these are very highly regarded medical journals, and that means that uh, doctors are across this sort of stuff, and they're getting up to date on the the sorts of new developments that we might see with FASD. Uh, Of course, that sort of information is available to anyone who really wants to search it out. Oh, absolutely, Neil. I think one of the things about the current era of information dissemination is that ignorance is a choice. Uh, we uh, people for all sorts of reasons. Um, time often, often is the case, but also a bias and or prejudice, and we all have them. We tend to, to read data that suits our echo chamber and listen to what we want to listen to to, to make sure that we're okay with the decisions we make because we don't. Want, <coughs> excuse me, we don't want people making. You know, we don't want to have uh, uncomfortable elements coming into our lives, challenging us to change our behaviour, which is really sad when it comes to something as life-changing is this and when it comes to substance use whether it be the legal one of ethanol alcohol or the illegal substances and the myriad myriad of those the harms are irrefutable i mean there's different levels of different harms different people no argument but the harms are done it's unquestionable that this is uh, the case that these harms are done and i suppose the concern for me when, when the lancet who's which is a very prominent very thorough one they tend to be a little bit uh you know, a little bit too courteous towards uh, this kind of stuff. I don't want to say too much more than that. But they've come out pretty scathing uh, about this. And uh, a recent paper that they released uh, was that there is no such thing as any safe use of alcohol for anybody. And, of course, the Cancer, Cancer sorry, Council of Australia have had on their website for some years and have reiterated recently, if you want to maximise your risk of diminishing, or maximise, so minimise your risk of getting, get the wording out right, mm-hmm. 
minimize your risk of cancer, the best thing you can do is to never drink alcohol at all. So you got this data out there about cancer. Of course, we haven't even talked about, we won't because time will not permit it, about sustainable development goals, which is about the world's poorest and the world's, we're trying to reach these sustainable development goals. And alcohol production and alcohol consumption influences at least 12 of those goals negatively. So that's a whole different conversation for another day. But this is, again, a legal drug. And the burden of disease that alcohol creates globally is staggering. In 2016, for a matter of fact, the massive health risks, 3 million deaths were attributed to alcohol alone. 3 million deaths globally. That's to the legal drug. So again, we've got this real concern that, that these conversations aren't being had because, again, fundamentally people don't want to have their, their uh, lifestyles interrupted. But again, we're arguing that this is not just about your lifestyle, it's about the lifestyle of an unborn child, the developing child who will grow into an adult, and if they have FASD, will struggle for the rest of their lives with this. It's, it's not curable. I want to re- re- reiterate that. It's preventable, completely preventable, but utterly incurable. And this is the, you can manage symptoms, but they will never fix this. And that's the concern we have. And, of course, the use of alcohol by other people inappropriately and, of course, illicit drugs and what happens with people's behaviour and the harms to the community and, you know, crime and violence and all those other uh, shocking outcomes of substance use obviously should be concerning us as as civil society it says you know we care about our citizens we care about the old the young the frail the the marginalized we also care about our neighbor we actually we don't want to see these uh, behaviors impacting people negatively and certainly for the long term and let me just touch on something very controversial just for a moment and we'll try not to uh, hijack our conversation uh, taking mm-hmm. it off on a strange tangent uh, but when we talk about uh, you talked about uh, poverty uh, issues around the world. Uh, sometimes we're concerned about Indigenous communities and, and broadcasting into as many as 40 Indigenous communities around the nation today. But Indigenous communities uh, have battled with and grappled with uh, these issues to do with alcohol and there's all sorts of controversial uh, decisions that governments have made over the years about banning uh, alcohol in communities and things like that. But Indigenous communities, they do actually represent something of an example of what happens when you have uh, this, uh, you know, this unguarded, uh, non, uh, non, you know, where, where people have not had the, the sort of warnings that we're talking about today. What are your thoughts for Indigenous communities, Shane? Look, certainly, uh, certainly the, the biggest issue is not in our, in our Indigenous communities. Let's must, must make that clear per capita. Uh, the the non-indigenous Australians have far, far have far greater alcohol uh, outcome problems than the indigenous community to do. Sorry, but there is an overrepresentation of FASD sadly in some of our indigenous communities. In fact, in 2000, I think it's uh, 13 or 14, there was a, uh, a study done there with the wonderful assistance of the indigenous community uh, in Western Australia's Fitzroy Valley, and they uh, did a, a, a serious look at and study on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder amongst their community. They found one in eight children there were suffering from at different levels and the behavioural and, and learning outcomes of those of those children afflicted with this was really, really, really sad. And so, um, again, that, that, that was a wonderful contribution that the Indigenous community were able to make because they were able to study that in a closed environment. It's a bit more difficult in the non-Indigenous community that lives kind of scattered across large um, sea, um, 
city-wide uh, metropolitan areas. So we, we do know there's an over-representation in that particular study, but uh, generally speaking, in the non-Indigenous community, the alcohol issue is far greater than it is in the Indigenous community. And I think that's, that's where that needs to be stated very clearly. But it's interesting, a lot of Indigenous communities, as we've understood around um, Australia, of their own volition and not under legislative mantras or, or government policy uh, dictates, have actually made themselves dry communities. Um, the elders have decided to do that for all sorts of reasons, not, notwithstanding FASD, but behavioural issues, productivity issues, healthier communities, and they've seen incredible benefits from doing that for just a, a treatment of women, treatment of children, uh, productivity, uh, better community cohesion. And this applies, these same outcomes apply across all populations, regardless of whether they're Indigenous, non-Indigenous, uh, migrant, uh, whatnot. In fact, I'm working with a group here in Melbourne that are working with a particular migrant group, or will remain nameless, but a particular migrant group who have come from uh, shocking traumas in, in uh, Southeast Asia and uh, they've uh, come here out of non-alcohol communities to Australia and now have become in, uh, engaged in alcohol and it's causing all sorts of trouble to their community and there's local groups and councils and local charities working with these groups helping these men particularly get off alcohol uh, and, and find their way back to healthier and, and safer community environments. So again <clears throat> it's, a, it's a real concern across the sector when you've got this legal drug and of course it's legal socially acceptable and when uh, and often when people come from other countries and we've dealt well, I've dealt also with Sudanese refugees you know wonderful people just outstanding people but they're dealing with mums have said to me look my, my 16 year old boy's taken up with alcohol and it's, it's just changed him he's never had alcohol in his life because they've come out of a non-alcohol environment and have come to Australia and they're told well, you know, this is kind of a rite of passage you need to do this so they they take it up they're, they're physiologically unable to do so and it's impacted them like far more detrimentally than it would an, another 16, 17-year-old. And I'm dealing with a 17-year-old boy who's basically an alcoholic and I have to put him into rehab. And that happened in a matter of nine months. So this is a, that's a personal story I can share. So this, this legal drug and its kind of hold on our culture is concerning. And the fact that people parade their right to use it as some sort of, you know, um, this, this sort of sovereign, unassailable virtue is concerning because I think that narrative is creating all sorts of problems, not only for Indigenous Australians and, and uh, immigrants and, and refugees, but it also sends a message to the young people that this is kind of how it works. Now, that has been changing. I want to reiterate the good news is we've seen rapid and uh, significant, sorry, decline in binge drinking amongst the young and overuse of alcohol, new, new phases coming in of, of moderate drinking and um, whatnot. And so that's, a, that's encouraging. I want the viewers, uh, sorry, listeners to hear that. That is encouraging. But, yeah, there is, there is a concern here, and I think that primary prevention, not uptaking alcohol at all, particularly under the age of 25 for, for women and 28 for men, is best practice because we know the brain is still developing and there's no such thing as safe substance use of any substance for the developing brain. But well, certainly over the age of 21, if you can hold off at taking alcohol to the age of 21 before you uptake, and if you need to uptake alcohol, drink incredibly moderately and certainly only no more than two or three days a week then then this is going to minimize the harms across so many areas so primary prevention it needs to be really re-looked re at in this country rather than damage management of simply harm reduction models that say oh well we'll just let people do what they want and try and fix it later which is not helpful in that context particularly when it comes to alcohol okay so you mentioned 25 for men 28 for women 
uh, for a lot of people, so that'll 20, be 25 like... 25 for women, 28 for men. Oh, sorry, 25 for women, 28 yeah, women, for men. Women get smarter quicker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, that might, be, that. that might be controversial uh, for yeah. some listeners. Uh, and, sure. and you're saying that is actually prescribed best practice when it comes to alcohol use. Uh, well, let me... what the science what the science says. I'll just jump in there. What the yep. science says is that the 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 male brain, as up to twenty five, sorry, up to twenty five, the female brain is still developing, but about twenty five, it's fully developed. The male brain can be up to twenty eight. So, in that framework, that developmental sphere, which can you know obviously end earlier, but the 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 data is clear that it's up to twenty eight for men, up to twenty five for women. There is no safe use of any substance. So this argument is there's safer use, yeah? No argument there, but there is no safe use of any substance, legal or illegal, for the developing brain. There's no dissenting voice in the in the academic world on that. So it's so it's all a measure of okay, what's safer? You know, so it's safer at 21 than it is at 17. Of course it is, but it's not safe. It's safer at 25 than it is at 21. Yes, it is, but it's not safe. So again, this this kind of negotiation continues. So again, the idea of trying to protect the, the most important asset you've got, your brain, and it's, that's the source of a lot of our humanity, our creativity and you know, relationships and all sorts of things, and that's the one that we should be looking after. So again, the, the science around that's in. So uh, there's a debate around what is safer, but there's no such thing as safe. In other words, you can, you can drink at this age and be completely safe. And so after 28, the brain has stopped developing. There are other factors that contribute to health and well-being, of course, but your brain is now fully developed. So alcohol's impact on that does, and other drugs, can change, or it's lesser than it would be if it wasn't developing, and that's the important distinction. Shane, let's let's manoeuvre our conversation around solutions and uh, some positives sure. that we might be able to bring out of it because uh, this conversation uh, could be perceived by many to be very, very negative and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, no alcohol is good alcohol. And so when yeah. we talk about leadership, community leadership, uh, socio-political will, uh, even to mention those Indigenous communities that you said have uh, not because of legislation alone... Uh, but because elders have said for the good of our community we're going to have dry communities. Well, uh, commending uh, the uh, and honouring those uh, those elders in those communities because they're concerned about their children and their grandchildren, uh, generations to come. So when we talk about a leadership here, let's bring it right down to the family level uh, because uh, everyone listening will have family members who are drinkers. Some of them will be in that uh, conception, pregnancy, age group. Uh, what are your thoughts for how you actually lead your family through such a minefield as alcohol and and drug use when it comes to these issues. What are your thoughts for parents or grandparents uh, in this field? Oh, wow, that's a, a huge question with you know, lots of ramifications. I don't want to give trite one-liners in this space, but getting back to the term primary prevention, very important. You know, the, the, the more we do in this space, and that includes, you know, obviously delaying or denying uptake as long as possible. That's, that's just a no-brainer, uh, it's absolute no-brainer. If you can deny or delay uptake of any substance as long as possible, particularly in the brain's developmental phase, the better you will be from conception through to uh, adult. In fact, we're uh, the, uh, the, the lead agency in a, uh, a, a considerable coalition of different groups that have set up a, a program called 21B there which was, uh, we, we did our launch in Canberra in 2013 and they got a huge 
uh, publicity during the first uh, first unfortunate uh, party spills in, with, with the Labor government. But uh, we were doing launching our 21B there. We were looking at ra- the, the policy of raising the, drink, raising the drinking age back to 21, because it used to be 21 until the Vietnam War in Australia, and they reduced it because of the Vietnam War, which is another conversation. But yeah, that best practice is, you know, if you can delay uptake to 21 before you drink, you are going to be far better off than you, if you'd taken up alcohol even at 18, let alone early, earlier than that. So the science around that's in, and that's that's why we, that 21 is a is a base a base level. Certainly, from a family perspective, modelling to your children is important. I've done enough education models around uh, around this country with different sectors, both private, public, um, you know, secular, not and religious sections, um, and we found that when we talk about modelling. Parents start to realise that, gee, when you know, when I talk about needing a drink when I get home from work, sends a powerful message. Even even the whole um, using pharmaceuticals, for example, oh, I've got a shock and headache, so the first thing I do is go for the tablets. It it sets away again. No one's doing this maliciously, but it sets a model, and your children are watching you, and they're watching you all the time. So when you say, oh, you're using alcohol to relax, or alcohol to celebrate, or alcohol to unwind, and and that's what you do all the time, then those those modelling messages are very, very profound. So the child kicks up, okay, it's okay to get wasted, you know, when there's a wedding on. You know, sure, you don't get wasted during the week because you've got to work, but when there's a wedding, you get wasted. That's what you do. And and those kind of inadvertent messages get, uh, you know, get uh, devolved to, to children. So modelling is really important. And when you drink alcohol, when you buy alcohol, sitting routines, I still remember a principle of a, of a very big private school here in Melbourne said to me, he said, you know what, after listening to your seminars, I've realised that I, every Friday, uh, every Thursday night, uh, my son and I, we go to the bottle shop, I get three or four bottles of wine for the weekend, we go home, and he doesn't drink with me because he won't drink till he's 18, he made that call because of our seminars, uh, but which was a great move for him. But he said, I've realised even after a couple more years, he's watching me do this, this is what I do, it's my routine every week. So I've stopped doing that. I, in fact, I've had now two or three months where I don't drink at all. When I do drink, it's at, it may be at a celebration, which is fine. But again, he starts to think about how he's modelling. I think they're the key issues, attitudes and models towards alcohol. And anyone who's celebrating alcohol as a good thing and constantly talking about it in the, oh, can't wait to have a beer or oh, looking forward to that bottle of red, those kind of statements are really unhelpful for kids because they said, okay, this is what mum and dad do. They really love this. They really want this. Um, and those conversations I hear all the time, just harmless little statements. Oh, oh, I had a great bottle of red the other day. I'm looking forward to that next bottle of red or a bottle of white or whatever it is. And those kind of things really, the, your children pick up on that. And I think if you want to have a drink as an adult over the age of 18, that's, that's perfectly up to you. Certainly intoxication is, is unwise and, and on all sorts of levels. But it's certainly not illegal and it's certainly not immoral to have a drink of alcohol. But my Shane, concern is, I suppose, that we have this kind of modelling set up. Yeah. Just a, a few minutes left in our conversation. Sure. Uh, let me bring us back to what we started talking about at the beginning, the idea of truth in advertising, because if you are uh, the person who is modelling for your children uh, or even for your grandchildren or for everybody in your whole family, uh, you're up against the challenges of advertising. You're up against the Hollywood movies. You're up against uh, the sporting sponsorships on our uh, on our sporting fields that our kids are all being impacted by. Uh, your modelling really has to be stronger than the culture that is trying to overwhelm the children. Uh, what are your thoughts just for... Uh, you know, for for being determined and 
and needing to have uh, to take a little bit of courage to actually do what you're suggesting. Well, I think that's the key. I think you just do you make that just quickly. You make those clear statements. Listen, if you're going to have a drink in your home, that's that's your prerogative. That when you do it, how you do it, it's really important. And you're constantly speaking to your children about it. So your behaviour and your words line up. So your values and your words, regardless of what your background may be, religious, not religious, whatever your words are and your behaviours are, they've got to line up. That consistency and congruency is vital for young people. They pick that up, right? And even if the messaging outside the community is do this, do that, when mum and dad, even if you're abstainers from alcohol, your messaging is still profound. And I, I used to drink when I was, I stopped drinking when I was 19 years of age, and I haven't drunk since. Uh, for, for mainly for social and um, uh, justice reasons. I don't drink because I see the, the harms that it does and I don't need it in my life. And I, if I can be a model for someone else, then great. Uh, and that, that has been the case. And my children grew up in a home where they didn't have alcohol, um, but when they turned 18, if they wanted to drink, they could do that. And some of them have chosen to do that and certainly not to, to intoxication. But that's, that's what I'm saying. It's those conversations are really, really important around values, around what's going on. But there's also, just quickly, there are really important organisations that are in play, not just the Algano Institute, but there's a Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education, FAIR. They're a, a great peak body. There's a National uh, Action on Alcohol Alliance, which we're a member of. It's another great peak body that's pushing back into this space. In fact, there's a launch for the getting rid of alcohol from uh, advertising from sport uh, in October, and the, the 10th of October in Melbourne here at, uh, at one of the big stadiums. They're going to be launching the uh, Let's Get Rid of Alcohol Completely Out of Sport. So, again, there's lots of good movements out there, and you can use those movements to back your position, whatever it may be, moderate drinking, no drinking. Um, you, you can use those to back your lesson teaching, your instruction of your, your family, help that model better for your family. Okay, there are some resources that are available to parents or for those who are community leaders. Uh, let me point people to the website, dalganoinstitute.org.au. That's dalganoinstitute.org.au. And Shane Varco is the Executive Director of Dalgano Institute, and it's a coalition of alcohol and drug educators. And if you've listened to our conversation over this past hour, it'd be uh, very compelling to say uh, something needs to be done. There are some real uh, significant factors that are at work in our society that are shaping us perhaps in a direction that we might, uh, in a common-sense way, uh, recognise have real difficulties. But uh, Shane Varco, just great getting your insights once again Thanks so much for uh, straight shooting, uh, for not holding back, uh, for being able to equip us in such a way as to uh, know how to take some directions forward and modelling for our own families. Uh, Shane, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. Oh, my pleasure, Neil, as always, and thank you for the time today. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.